Hi, I'm Sage. I'm here with Adam. And this week, another question. What's interesting in hashtag Indie Game of Day 2016? And by interesting, we mean trolly and not trolly and, and uh, crazy and not crazy and... What can you answer seriously? Yeah, so we should start with like a quick introduction to what this is. Uh, so Paul Beakley on Google Plus uh, back in August posted uh, a list of questions for September, one question per day, with a hashtag Indie Game of Day 2016, uh, and they are deliberately ridiculous. Uh, they, they poke fun at a lot of indie game uh, kind of memes. Uh, some people have answered them ironically. Some people have answered them non-ironically. Uh, I think my favorite comment on it was Jonathan Walton, who said uh, they're great both ironically and unironically. Even the ones that are obviously trolling, right. it's kind of interesting to see what people say about them. Yeah, there's a bunch of these where uh, there's the troll sentiment laid on top, but the question itself is actually a seriously good question. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's been interesting seeing people's reaction because I had at least one person tell me that uh, it was hilarious how many people had fallen for the trolling. And I, I don't know that they fell for it so much as they just decided, like, whatever, I'm going to answer this anyway. Uh, and that's I, I admire that. Some of these questions do actually have an interesting, like, there's one of them that I really legitimately want to answer. Do you want to lead with that one or end with it? Uh, sure, I'll lead with that one it, because it's kind of the least, uh, it, it's the most straightforward answer. So it's, oh, I didn't write down the number on this one. Anyway, it, one of the questions is, uh, what's the most interesting period of obscure and unrelatable history you'd like to see a game set in? It's like 28, I think. How would you do it? Uh, which I think is wonderful. I actually love obscure, unrelatable history, especially for RPGs. And this isn't like an indie game thing. You go back through GURPS source books and... Uh, they are basically history textbooks on different periods. Uh, I, I think this is just a gamer thing. Like we we latch on to interesting things and get obscurely into them in deep ways. Yeah, different settings are cool, and a lot of settings tend to. Well, a lot of the cliche settings for RPGs tend to be either Tolkien fantasy or like the occasional Eastern stuff. Mm -hmm. and it's like. Seeing something different is nice when it's not directly, oh, yeah, this is obviously somebody saw Token and changed a couple of names. Well, and it, it runs so deep in in gaming. The, uh, the idea of learning something about obscure, unrelatable history through yeah, gaming true. is pretty elemental. I mean, how many gamers have obscure names for pole arms that they can pull up <laughs> off the top of their head? Because AT&T, basically, right. like... It's the wargaming RPG connection, right? Yeah. Our, our weird history background. Yeah, and it, it actually makes for a lot of really good games, not just indie games, however you want to define that. Uh, I mean, that's kind of the, the lie of the center of all this is what's an indie game, and I'm not answering that one. <laughs> uh, but to actually answer Paul's question, because I think this one is a lot of fun to answer, my number one, uh, for a long time I wanted this little bit of history that I found in a book called uh, The Rest is Noise, which is a history of like modern uh, classical music, for lack of a better term. Um, I guess after World War II, there were military squads that went around Germany denazifying, which meant things like hunting down Wagner and mm -hmm. saying you can't perform that anymore. And I totally want that, but in Dogs in the Vineyard. You're oh, like geez. a military... <laughs> I'd yeah. play that hack now. I know. It, it would be great. And it's obscure history. You could write all this stuff about weird little Bavarian villages that love their Wagner and uh, <laughs> and all the crazy things that come from that. And then you come in rolling in as these out-of-town American PIs. And, yeah. Oh, man, that's beautiful. 
Yeah, uh, and there's a ton of these. Like, I could keep on going with weird historical things. I'm sure that you have. Oh, man. Yeah, so my wargaming collection, I organize by, like, period of history and location. <laughs> and, like, one of the big problems is it's really hard to find a game set in Africa that's actually interesting and isn't the North African campaign. Yeah. Uh, which is not that interesting to me yet. We'll see. Um, and so so Africa's a pain. I've got South, Aust- uh, South America, which is great. There's people that joke about making the emu war into a game Mm -hmm. for Australia but you know it's just it's hard to find pieces that are not North America or Europe or random kind of Asian stuff so yeah Yeah, I mean all of these would make great games Mm -hmm. and I I don't think that this is as trolly as nearly all the rest of them because I think that no it's uh, a legitimate question that is a legit question and I want to hear other people answer it uh, this also sounds like a way to figure out what Jason Morningstar is making for his next game this right is... it's a dig on Night Witches but it's great exactly and, oh man yeah I, I I love settings that that make you think about something weird I don't love settings that make me learn about something in a way uh, not make me learn about something but that I quickly absorb an interesting amount of setting. I don't want to read, like, most of those GURPS books I found really interesting bits of and then drop the rest of it. Uh, But if you can manage to bring something to the table that actually takes some obscure, unrelatable part of history and makes it interesting, like, that's fantastic. Yeah, Sagas of the Icelanders. Sagas of the Icelanders, like, who knew? Awesome. Beautiful stuff. I I played the farmer, and I was just an Icelandic farmer, and it was fantastic. (laughs) Uh, Who would have thought, like, if you told me, we're going to play a game where you're an Icelandic farmer, I would have been like, okay, uh, let me pull out my cell phone. (laughs) Is that that a real game, or are you trolling me? Yeah, are you trolling? Or is it one of those LARPs where you, like, sit around and (laughs) talk about how boring this is? Uh, No, like, it's a legitimately awesome game, and... I don't know. This is this is indie games. This is OSR games. I mean, there's uh, OSR games that do African, uh, not historical exactly, right. but fictionalized Africa in in pretty decent ways. Um, was it Spears of the Dawn by? Uh, oh, I'm blanking on his name. Stars without number. Um, I'll, I'll make sure we get it from the notes. Uh, but yeah, there, there's these legitimately great games that take on this stuff, and uh, I am happy to answer that question, and I think that Paul totally dropped his uh, trolling level on that one. <laughs> that one is like minimum trolling. Yeah, the as an aside, so talking about a couple of these questions that are minimal troll, What uh, number 13 was, what's the most you spent on a Kickstarter game relative <laughs> to the amount of play? I buy so many Kickstarter games that are just really for reading, um, but I have a feeling that Inheritance is going to end up being that, because it's like exactly 10, and it's a long one, and I have to convince people, no, 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 this is really something you want to come over for. Uh, I have a feeling that is going to end up with a, a time when I have 10 people coming over, and one of them drops at the last minute, and I'm like, oh, I guess we're going to do something else. Yeah, I, Inheritance is way up there for that. Uh, RPG is generally not as bad Mm-mm. for me, mostly because... Uh, unless or I really like it, I just go too. for a PDF, yeah. yeah. Uh, Golem Arcana, totally the worst for that. Like, <laughs> we played one game of that. It oh, really wasn't for us, and I I regretted that you a lot. Can't know. But yeah, so that's 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 my aside. But uh, the 29 is, what indie game tech do you most keenly miss when you play something mainstream? Oh, because obviously like these games are all better, and whenever you play anything else, you're missing something. But oh man, character creation in indie games is so nice. Yeah. That's, that's the biggest thing to me, is that a lot of the mainstream games, 
you know, even even D and D five, which has really cut down and streamlined their character creation, it's like, okay, show up and we're gonna spend half an hour to an hour building characters, and I can run I can run an apocalypse world demo with like character creation on the fly while you play the game, uh, and maybe. You know, maybe you can do that kind of thing in, in normal D&D if you're just super in on the system. Uh, oh, man, it's just so much nicer. And then streamlined combat. Yeah. Uh, like, all of the indie games that do um, combat resolution is exactly the same as resolution in the rest of the game, and you're rewarded exactly the same way, so there's no real reason. And since I play RPGs with new people a lot, and new people don't know that... Combat is the way that you get all of your rewards in mm-hmm. RPGs most of the time. Oh, it just makes it makes the experience so much better. I, I like this question partially because the flip side of it is totally valid as well. Like yeah, there are totally. things from a lot of oh man, I hate that answering these questions we have to draw the indie trad line somewhere. But there are games that wouldn't be considered indie by most people to like totally hedge my words. I'm going. I'm going 100k. Uh, sales or more is non-indie. Oh gosh, that rules out a lot of. It's just only hundred k. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not it's not a, it's not everything. But I'm talking about only the serious contenders that have twenty seven editions and have been around since the seventies. Like that's that's the stuff that I'm talking about is traditional. A hundred k. Does that include PDF sales? Ooh, ooh, that's hard. Um, I think I would include PDF sales. If I if I understood counts, are you are you getting close to traditional? I, I, I'm saying that by your definition, Dungeon World I think is traditional. Yeah, but all of those are like the third buy that somebody's made <laughs> on accident or something. I couldn't find this in my Evernote cache or something. They're they're just propping up our numbers. Exactly. Yeah, we've got the, I've bought fifty copies myself. Oh, so. thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I like this one because it it's this reminder that uh, the the grass is always greener. Kind of like oh, totally. Whenever I play any game. Part of what I like about that game is that it's not other games, but that also means that I'm missing those other games. Like, this right. is, it's an awesome trolling question because it gets people to go into this and start talking about, like, it, it's a trap question. Yeah. Uh, but it's also totally fair. Like, in, if you dropped the indie part of it, like, when you are playing Game X, what do you miss from other games? Right. That's a totally typical question. I in almost every game, I miss the A, D, and D. You get experience for the gold that you bring out of the dungeon, uh-huh. and that's it. Oh, I miss that rule so much. Whenever I'm playing, great anything. rule, and it's so maligned, and I don't <laughs> know why. It it drives so many great decisions. Yeah, it's um, yeah, things that I miss. Uh, oh, and I also the second part of the question is: Do you announce it in person, or do you save it for a rant on social media? And I I am always an in person rant kind of person. So, uh, yeah, I I I do. <laughs> um, no, things that I miss uh, from... It, I've been playing 5th edition mostly as far as like non-indie games other than Dungeon World uh, <laughs> recently, and I would say uh, I miss like character creation and ease of improvis- improvisation. I'm not running the game. Uh, one of my coworkers is running the game, and I feel really bad for how much work he has to do and then like We've had a few people kind of come and go because it's all people from work and somebody gets busy, so we bring in somebody new. And they have to, like, sit down and block out time to make characters with the GM because a lot of them are new players, and that takes a while. It's like, you need to understand the ramifications of these decisions because they're going to totally screw with what choices you can make in-game legitimately. And especially, they have to jump in at a higher level now. So it's not only that you have to make, like, the first-level choices, which 5th edition is a pretty good job of streamlining a fair ways down, but then you have to be like, oh, and then... 
get up to level whatever. <laughs> right, um, now make all of these decisions based on information you should have gotten in the game yeah. that you and, do not have. And then I feel bad the, the amount of prep that he has to do. Like, we, we get right. to a fight or something, and it's this, oh, let me check my notes. And, uh, I mean, there, there's a lot of benefit to that, and it makes some of the written adventures great, but I... I feel bad that I'm making somebody do that much work, and then I sit down and like we p- play for a couple hours, and yeah, the the amount of work there. Yeah, but like that's something I miss when I'm am playing indie games on occasion. Is I I DM'd D and D forever, like, mm-hmm. and making those maps and creating those encounters. That's just fun stuff. I agree. It's I, fun solo work. I think that it's fun solo work, especially when it's. Uh, like useful but not required. Right. I think it's the requirement that gets me when, like, to to run the game, you're either studying a written adventure to the point that you've internalized it, or writing up your own stuff. And either of those is pretty time consuming. I like games where you can play at least like seventy five to ninety percent unprepped. Of, yeah, unprepped. Like, yeah, that comes through. Yeah, <laughs> that, that actually that's the way that both of us do a lot of things. I think. Uh, yeah. But, yeah. I mean, it, it's a good, it's a good reminder. There's always something from another game, and that's that's a good thing. There isn't a game that's everything. Totally. Uh, speaking of games that are everything, uh, <laughs> one of my favorites, uh, just for the sheer trolliness of it, how many played uh, Powered by the Apocalypse games do you own, and which one best captures its most cliched genre tropes? Oh, yeah. I, I love the vagueness of genre here. Is that like a Powered by the Apocalypse genre or the genres that each of these games goes into? Because either way, I've got answers. Oh, man. Um, How, what's, what's your count? Did you do a count? I did actually do a count, but I get into tricky numbers counting because, uh, for example, I've got Dungeon World in several languages. No, let's, let's say uh, if you would consider it effectively the same game, how so many different games do you have? If I would consider, well, like... I don't think I would consider Apocalypse World Second Ed a different game yet, based okay. on my reading of the PDF. That's where I'm at too. Okay, uh, reading it. So my count then, uh, like my minimum count is 24, <laughs> and it goes up from there depending on how many editions like, and versions and well, and stuff like uh, uh, Johnson Johnson's game uh, Space Worm versus Moonicorn. Right. Like it's a, it's still Dungeon World, but it's a significant addition and change to Dungeon World, uh, and Dungeon Planet as well. Like he, he has several games that are still Dungeon World, and oh, I wouldn't say Dungeon Planet is Dungeon World. I, uh, in the same way, I wouldn't say Dungeon World is Apocalypse World. Okay, like, I, I don't think they're quite that far, but I, I can see where you're getting there. Anyway, twenty four and up. Yeah. Okay. Um, oh man. And I have played. Most of those, and some of them are, oh man, I get to go total indie cred now. Some yeah, of them are it. games that uh, are so obscure that nobody has heard of them before. Except actually you, Disney World, for example. We yeah! played Disney World together. Disney World was worth it. Disney World, I still have that PDF and I treasure it because <laughs> it is a game that will never be released, obviously, because of the name. Did you like the uh, very very best play stage, playtest stage game question? Yeah, I, I almost went for that one as well. Uh, the Oh, I'm sure you have it there, but it's something to the effect of like, what was your favorite play test stage game, and how was it better then than it is <laughs> the now? The very best play test stage game your friends probably haven't heard of yet, and how long ago did you play it, and how much better that was it than its current version? Dungeon World doesn't have, uh, sorry, Disney World doesn't have a current version, <laughs> so right. no better. Oh, I was going to bring up all of my games, because that's <laughs> what I hear every day. Oh, no, just go back a year or two, and it was way better. Yeah, so uh, I guess we've mentioned Disney World, so now we owe an explanation, because first of all, it's ungoogleable. Yeah, it's uh, yeah go on Google and search Disney World. Good luck with that. <laughs> um, 
it's a Powered by the Apocalypse RPG. When I first heard of it, I thought you were going to play like Donald Duck and stuff, which would have been pretty cool. In like a kind sense of sense, you can. Yeah, but I, I was thinking like the um, tune, right? Uh, the, the classic RPG tune where you play cartoon characters. I was expecting something along those lines. It's actually like a. Uh, a future where everybody lives in Disney World in kind of a vaguely post-apocalyptic, uh, or like you've survived the apocalypse by being in Epcot, basically. The, you, the like you're playing paranoia as Disney World's uh, employees. Yes, is what you are. Yes, it is paranoia via Disney World, <laughs> uh, and you have playbooks like you're a mascot or you're an Imagineer. Uh, and we played a brief game of it at PAX, oh man, three years ago now somebody probably. Somebody had nukes uh, yeah, they were working on. Somebody had nukes they were working on. You, you were pulled into uh, a manager. They, they weren't called managers, of course. They were waltz. Yeah. Uh, you're caught into a waltz office and you had to like ride the ride into the office and then it turns around and wheels you back out. It was great. I loved the concept. Uh, the That's all stuff that we came up with in play, too. Like The game was, the game was beautifully simple and just enough... Uh, just enough notes there to push you in a weird direction, yep. but not so much that you know it constrained you, which is a really hard balance. It was so good the way that they communicated something that got us there really quickly and got us all on the same page while being so out there and weird. Mm-hmm. And it has basic moves like wishing upon a star. Like so People are always listening, so you can literally wish upon a star, and there is a division of surveillance that might have heard it and might answer your <laughs> wish. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful creative game that will never be published, obviously, especially under that title. But even right. if you file everything off, I think you're going to have a hard time going much anywhere with that. Oh, man, it, um, it is such a great game, and... Uh, now we've totally digressed off of Apocalypse World Hacks because we're supposed to be talking about the ones that uh, are most cliched, and that one is... Anti-cliché? Possibly the least cliched. Um, I mean, I figure... It I'll, gets the paranoia genre. Although that sure. might just have been us just smashing it right in. I, I think that it's possible to go a little less paranoia than we did. We we went pretty heavy paranoia with kind of like a troubleshooter mission kind of thing, but that was partially the playbooks we mm-hmm. had. Um I, so I actually want to answer Paul's question because I refuse to treat these as entirely trolling. There's a grain of truth here. That's right. Uh, so which, uh, if we talk about cliché genre as in Powered by the Apocalypse is the genre, then Apocalypse World is kind of the most clichéd. Everything you hear about Powered by the Apocalypse of, like, it's weird and slightly confrontational to the reader and uh, deliberately... Uh, almost obscure at times. That is all true of Apocalypse World. It's all for very good reasons, but it, it is all true. Um, and it should be. And second edition, uh, we actually mentioned briefly, I, that's probably... I'm, I'm surprised that's not bigger news, really. It's... it's it's I hmm. on, a, on a cursory reading, it's hard to tell much difference. Like, somebody on Reddit went through and kind of compiled all of the major differences. Mm-hmm. And it fit in, like, a four or five paragraph Reddit post. It wasn't some enormous treatise that was, yeah, this is a completely different game. You yeah. know, like like 3 and 4 Dun- uh, D&D, right? But, uh, it kind of yeah. goes back to our what, what is an edition thing. Like, so far to me, uh, it it doesn't feel like a typical RPG edition. It feels like the like a a revised reprinting. I mean, there's a few move changes that are that people will notice more dramatically. The playbooks have been reworked some. Combat is very different. Combat is probably one of the the biggest changes. Um, but I I almost feel like somebody who had only played Apocalypse World casually, if you just substituted all second edition stuff, yeah. 
they might not notice. They'd probably be like, oh, I didn't remember it worked this way, but I don't think they would immediately be like, no, this is this, this is, is a very different edition. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Apocalypse World is kind of its own example of the genre for good reason, uh, but I like to give it a little bit of shit for uh, being... Being Apocalypse World, but how about the uh, one who embodies its its particular picked genre? Uh, oh man! So partially because this this is phrased so negatively, I had to go with one of the few Powered by the Apocalypse World games that I, I legitimately don't like. And I try not to talk about games I don't like because I I don't want to get negative, but. I'm not a big fan of Tremulous. Yeah, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I was like, I'm waiting. It's going to come. Yeah. Uh, so Tremulous was um, one of the earlier Apo- Powered by the Apocalypse games. Yeah. Um, and it's doing Cthulhu, basically. And it's um, th- there's some disconnect between using the Powered by the Apocalypse engine, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it, being based on Apocalypse World, and the other stuff they bring with it. And I think that so many things end up being cliches of the Cthulhu genre because they um, they keep them and it doesn't seem like a maybe the most considered keeping. Like people, you could argue that Dungeon World is the most cliched because we totally keep tons of Dungeon uh, Dungeons and Dragons cliches. Um, down but, to stats. Down My to stats. Goodness. Yeah, uh, but I, I at least think that we really thoroughly consider these and I can argue for why they're designed that way in every case. Maybe right. we're wrong, but they're, they're uh, at least But you have rationale. Cliche. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, the Tremulous people probably do too. I just haven't seen it when reading it. So for example... Um, the playbooks list your kind of starting equipment in the way that you might have in a Cthulhu game or something, but uh, it it ends up feeling oddly constrained in a game where you could also be like, uh, your playbook could be that you run a business and stuff. So uh, your starting equipment could be like, you have a suit and uh, a pair of shoes and a briefcase, and uh, like it, it lists out things on that kind of level, and that's not the way that people, even living 40 years ago, your possessions were a larger th- group than you can really write out. Uh, I haven't read much Lovecraft. I'm curious. I'm curious if it's pulled from how he introduced characters. I I am not a Lovecraft st- scholar. I came to Lovecraft relatively late, but I would say no. Like it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right. Um, and there's other things. It's an apocalypse world game that actually has moves that say, if you uh, like, if you make this move again you take a penalty uh, as a way of preventing the kind of roll until you succeed thing. Sure. Which... Uh, it's supposed to be the DM's job. It, it's supposed to be built into the design in a lot yeah. of ways. Like, and, and everybody's responsible for that to a degree. Like, it, it becomes kind of the GM's job through the way the game sets them up to do that. Right. Uh, and here, it's just flat out some of the, like, investigatory moves say, like, if you investigate the same thing again, you do it at minus one, and that keeps on adding if you keep on doing it. It's board gamey. It, it's board gamey. Uh, it... That's hard, though. Like, a lot of that first collection of, of Apocalypse World hacks did go pretty board gamey yeah. Because the game made it so easy. Like, the scaffold made it so easy to push that. It's a move looks like this, and look, he's got three options based on what your role was, and I know your role is modified by stats, and okay, cool. And you take this simple reading of it, and you go, well, I can just pick whatever three options I want, and that first option can give you these bonuses, and those are, you know, I understand how bonuses work. But then you get to, like, a second edition, which has the jumping on a speeding car or whatever rule that was yeah. seven to nine, you get on, but Jesus, which is the most amazing beca- because it's not, it's not a bonus. It's just something that's evocative of what happened, but that's hard to do. It's hard to do. Like the, 
uh, Vincent is excellent in making his game look easy to design, and it wasn't. He is an excellent designer, uh, and a lot of these things kind of come out of, like they, they seem obvious once you see them, but uh, speaking from trying to have been as good, it is really tough. Um, so yeah, like I, I think that I, I hate to talk about a game that I don't particularly like, but Tremulous uh, to me hits a lot of more so than a lot of Apocalypse World games. It uh, it feels like the cliches of its genre as opposed to a tool for being its genre. Yeah, good stuff. But what's your what's your next question? Do you like your scene framing hard, harder, or hardest? <laughs> What's the very hardest? Tenra Bansha Zero opens the game with you do a scene with every character. Mm-hmm. Full stop. And then when the new scenes start up, it's like, this is how they open. When these two people meet, this is how that happens. You roll on a table to figure out what their reactions are. Like, it's super, super constrained, and I love it so much. It's so, just the stuff that comes out of it in play is insane. Yeah. Um, because constraint, constraint breeds creativity. Like, right. Yeah. And with new players, like one of the problems that I've seen in games that are a little bit more open, you know, Fate and GURPS and, and whatever, uh, it's you have to really lean hard on some genre conventions to get everything to kind of work together. And sometimes that can make it really hard to be creative in play. Yeah. Because you say, well, what in the world am I supposed to do, right? Um, but... In Tenra, you know, you've got this insane character who already leads you to do something crazy. And then you meet this other insane character, and then you both roll, and it's like, well, you hate her with a passion, but she thinks that you need to be protected for whatever reason. And it's like, all of this stuff happens, and all the characters get those relationships as you're going in play. Oh, it's just beautiful. Well, I love it because it's an excuse for uh, not having to justify things too much. This is one of the wonderful things about random tables Mm -hmm. is that they tell you that something has happened and you can explain it as much as you want, but uh, that thing is now established and it puts everybody on the same page as like, there's going to be some weird stuff happening, which is kind of important because uh, I, I see this a lot in superhero games in particular. If you're not having something that forces you into slightly weird situations, you end up trying to justify things a lot. So, like, I was, I played a superhero game at Go Play Northwest years ago where my character, we, we got into the thing that I've seen a lot in superhero games of, okay, this is, like, the action scene that we need to get to. How does everybody get there? Like, how does your superhero get there? Your Batman, uh... Yeah, yeah, but my uh, I was playing, I think, a Batman-ish character arrived via bus uh, because, <laughs> we, like, we looked over things on his character sheet and, like, there, there was kind of, like, w- everything was becoming too justified to trying to establish how the world actually works, whereas if you watch, like, the Justice League cartoon or something... Who knows how Batman got there? Batman like just, leaps into frame. That's yeah, how he gets there. That's how he gets there, and random tables give you some of that, where, yeah. like, Batman's here. Who knows? He's it, Batman. It's so totally anime, too. That's the yeah. other thing I love it. Because, like I say, I play RPGs with people who often haven't played them very much. And, you know, I had a group that was super into anime. I brought this thing, and they're like, oh, I know how this works. Because mm-hmm. this is the beginning of blah, blah, blah anime series. And it's like, you have this cut, and it's a scene with just one person walking through the trees with cherry blossoms falling. And it's like... Yeah, I, I get that scene. I've seen that scene before. And then they meet this other person. We don't know who anybody is yet. And there's this screaming that happens immediately. Yep. Um, yeah, so I'm super excited about it. And then uh, just, just 
the way that scenes lead into other scenes is pretty natural. Oh, yeah, it's beautiful. I've tried to do, like, microscope mm-hmm. is the other super hard scene framing thing. Yeah. Um, oh, man, and it's so hard to teach people how to do that. It really is. Uh, the interesting thing about you choosing this question is I was just talking with John Harper last night. He did a, a Twitch stream with Vincent Baker, and they took this exact same question. Yeah, yeah, I and saw the big conversation about this stuff yesterday. Yeah, uh, oh, man, I missed that. Jeez, too much too much real-world work going on. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it's funny that we picked up on the same one because I guess uh, during that John made some reference to like uh, doing more of these and was asked to have one of us on there and like <laughs> uh, the podcast came up so we're just eating our own tail at this point. There like, you go. It, it's a small scene. But uh, yeah, I, I tend to prefer uh, Hardest when it comes to scene framing. Very, like, very strict, like, we are beginning a scene now kind of Hardest? Uh, hardest more so in uh, Go straight to something interesting happen, yeah. happening, and cut it fairly often. But and you want? Do you want the rules of the game to lay that uh, out explicitly, or do you want it just to be that the way that the game flows, it becomes explicit? We're we're using hardest different ways. I see. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what you're getting at. I actually don't particularly like super mechanical scene framing. Um, I, I like some of the Tenor Band shows stuff because it. The, the random element to it, like, it feels better when it's like that. I dislike some other games where it becomes more of a, like, these are the, the kind of scenes that you have to hit, uh, especially, like, a scene economy. Yeah, like, that stuff just, it doesn't jive with my play style well. Um, partially because a lot of the groups that I play with uh, were really good about going straight to the action, kind of, and being very open to glossing over the other stuff. Uh, so, you know, if... If we're exploring some underground cave, we can say, like, oh, you, you get lost and wander around for a while, and eventually you get to. Like, we don't have to decide all our lefts and rights and stuff. So we, we, we're we all on the same page there, and we can frame hard in the sense that we we gloss over everything else and then say, and then this, like, let's let's zoom in on this moment, and the rest of it will watch it fast forward. Kind there's, of. there's a book I've got that I really like called Cinematic Storytelling, mm-hmm. uh, which is all about... You know, you never have the scene in the movie that's half an hour of people walking and nothing happening unless the thing that's happening is this relationship that's building over that half an hour and a big, long discussion and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. But in RPGs, because we tend wargamey, uh, a lot of us anyways, especially yeah. if you come from D&D, you tend to say, well, there's a simulation going on here, and I need to make sure that that's accurately reflected in play, uh, which is... Not actually that fun, you know? It, and it's not often all that necessary. Like, there, I would say that even a lot of, uh, especially the early versions of D&D, had smart ways of doing that quickly. Like, mm-hmm. sure, maybe it's important to keep track of how long you wander around uh, random cave corridors. Or maybe it's even interesting and important how you do that exactly. Like, it doesn't have to be something that's glossed over. So you can either make it interesting and engaging itself, which is what uh, a lot of the classic adventures do really well. Mm-hmm. Um Caves of Chaos is great. Like there, there, you could totally spend a lot of time, basically getting lost there. But that's kind of the point. It's dungeoneering. Uh, and but it's a cinematic decision, right? Yeah. Like if if I think that there are very few games that make those those roles interesting, those mechanics interesting to the point where you want to spend a lot of time in them, mm-hmm. like. Whatever you spend lots of time on in your game, you are focusing on. You better focus on the thing that the game makes fun. Well, and I think uh, the the comparison for D&D there to cinematic is interesting, because I actually feel like, especially uh, around Moldvay, uh, yeah, earlier than that as well, um, 
D&D is in some ways more similar to uh, watching a sport than watching something cinematic. Sure. Like, uh, if you watch a football game, there's a lot of plays that on their own don't mean a whole lot, but they're entertaining enough to keep you going and they set up the bigger picture. And if you're very involved, they are actually where a lot of interesting things happen. Sure, the big plays are kind of the thing that'll be on the highlight reel, but the the time when, you know, you went left instead of right, and at this point I could be talking about football, football, or D&D, <laughs> uh, like, that, that's actually a really important moment that set up the eventual goal at the end. Sure. Um, but then cinematically, like, if you're assembling a, you know, if you're doing a sports movie version, mm-hmm. right, you still will cover the game, but you're not going to cover... All of the plays, but you still will cover some of those pieces unless your entire point of having the game in the movie is look at how amazingly they got beat mm-hmm. or how amazingly they won. And that's a fair thing. I mean, there there is a place for both uh, RPGs as um, the longest yard and yeah. as the Super Bowl or right. whatever. Like you, both of those things are entertaining things that people like, uh, and some people like more one more than the other. And RPGs can fit into both those kind of genres, both the Every play matters, uh, but a lot of them we kind of move past without a whole lot of detail. Or every play matters, and a lot of them just are off screen, and we kind of jump to the. Yeah. Uh, actually, the, I've wanted for a long time to do sports RPG. We've talked about it in the past. Yeah, like they're doing the cinematic, especially like the Friday Night Lights kind of thing, where like there's a highlight game to each session kind of thing, and you build up to it. Uh, probably using like worldwide wrestling, like that would be so good. <laughs> um, Someday I'll make that. Uh, either that or Night Witches, actually. Night Witches. Uh, <laughs> Night Witches, style. and you're touring across the country doing your your games. Uh, huh? I like it. Each opponent, uh, and you get some home games in there as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> someday. Someday it'll happen. Someday. And uh, I think to actually make it more approachable, uh, like pro sports are better suited for worldwide wrestling because that's the big like pageantry kind of one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Night Witches is totally the the like uh, Texas, New Mexico high school kind of thing mm-hmm. uh, where like football is a big deal but it's also like your small town kids. Uh, yeah. And, and then throw a little bit of um, monster parts in there just to make sure that you feel enough teenager. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to jam all those games together and uh, slap my name on it. Just kind of like... Then yeah. you become question 31 is, yeah. is what happens. Uh, oh, no, I, I took question 30, not 31. Uh, okay, well, I'll go to question 30 next. Do you have question 30 as your third? Yes. Because that's what I have as my third, too. So <laughs> beautiful. Go for it. Uh, I, I hope I numbered this right. It'd be hilarious. This if is the fondest different... memory of a yep. game? Yeah. yeah. Do it. Okay. What is your fondest memory of a game you thought was fun before you knew better? <laughs> Uh, which is a total trolling thing it's again. Wonderful! It's the the all indie gamers like evolved past the uh, the like troglodyte games. Once I was a child and I played games as a child. Yep. Uh, and then I grew up and played. I put away childish things and now I play Apocalypse World. I was gonna say Monster Hearts, which is the <laughs> perfect. Uh, I grew up and now I pretend to be a teenager. That's right. Um, so there's like a total trolling thing here in the way that it's phrased, but there's also this legitimate thing that people's like tastes change. Yeah. Uh, like uh, my actual example here is GURPS. Uh, like I. I used to love GURPS. I still appreciate lots of things about it, but I wouldn't want to play it. Uh, and in particular, there was a game uh, that I ran, a, a one-shot that was like a, a teenage slasher movie kind of thing. Like, you go camping in the forest, and then somebody is out to kill you for kind of, you know, weird reasons, and there's traps and stuff. And uh, playing this in GURPS meant all kinds of weird roles on, like, critical damage stuff, like... 
Uh, oh man, because this was while I was in high school, like, it got real over the top real fast. There was a rocket launcher involved. It's GURPS. It's GURPS. It gets real over the top real fast. And trying to figure out like how many teenagers die from a rocket propelled <laughs> grenade was actually like this this detail of like, oh wait, no, you you can knock off one of those dice because you're this far away. Uh, and then years later, I played Dread and was like, oh. I could have done this much more efficiently. Uh, so, I mean, I, I enjoyed that, and I still look back on it fondly, and I would still do it again, but practically to, to make it run more, that particular game run more smoothly, I'd do it in Dread. Right. Which, which even has a scenario specifically for that. Exactly. Uh, mine is DD4. Uh, we had a game here at work, uh, like every other week or something, for a long time. Um, and I somehow got out of DMing it so that I could play. Nice. And I built a dragonborn fire mage who thought that he was actually a dragon. <laughs> and so, like, you know, being able to roleplay that part was awesome and fun, but the game didn't actually support any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So in the end, like, you, you either had to say, well, I'm going to do these things that's going to make my character drag the rest of the party down, or I'm going to say screw it. I'm going to do funny things because it's funny to do funny things. Yep. Uh, which which was just sad. And it's like there are there are tons of places that you can do that in in almost any non D and D four game. Because D and D four says, look, if you can't do combat, you're, you're not going to cut it as a character. Period. Yeah. And my character was like, well, I'm a I'm a dragon, so I can just sit in the middle of combat and breathe fire on everybody and kill them all. Mm-hmm. And it's like because D and D made it so easy to heal. He could almost do it. Yeah. Oh, but it, it just felt bad. Like, oh, it was so much fun to play as yeah. that character. Yeah. Like, I, I feel like this question, uh, my notes on it say flat out A plus trolling because this, it totally <laughs> plays on normal human things, uh, one of which being just like changing tastes and growing up. Like, there's, there's music that I liked when I was younger that I don't like anymore. There's food that I liked when I was younger that I don't like anymore. Like, your tastes change and that, uh, Everybody tends to try to justify their current taste, and uh, so if currently you are playing insert type of game here, yeah, like, don't be an asshole about it, is basically what it boils down to, uh, and this is the most trolling way to point that out. Uh, and the other element I think of it is um, guilty pleasures. Like, we, as people in the U.S. Uh, in 2016, tend to... There are certain things that you like that you may not want to admit you like. Uh, and there's a great uh, essay on this by Chuck Klosterman about basically like taking that back. Like liking something is your value judgment and there's nothing wrong with that. Like you like what you like and own it. And uh, yeah, I like some games that uh, I, I can also poke all kinds of holes in and stuff, but I'm not going to, it's not a guilty pleasure that I like them. There's a piece of this too that's also, you know, talking about the game being fun versus the play being mm-hmm. fun, right? My playing that mage, that was fun play, but I wasn't actually interacting with the game at all during those parts. Yeah. Which means that, like, the game wasn't helping me at all. Yeah. You know, and there's a ton more games where that would actually interact with the game. Like, you could play uh, Burning Wheel Human who thought he was a dragon much more interestingly and actually interact with the game. Yeah, like, your, your beliefs and instincts there would be interesting, to say the least. It's great. He would die so fast. So fast. Oh um, but but I mean, like then then you are playing the game, and and there there is a ton of D and D four point of the game that is fun as a game. You know the the combat is very very interesting combat. That's that's a beautiful piece of it. Uh, but that wasn't the thing that I want to do. So yeah. 
Yeah, it's weird. No, I love these questions, though. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that they are they're wonderful in that they're pointing out foibles uh, while also actually being somewhat insightful. The other one that I wrote down just for... Um, oh, yeah, we're going to do bonus questions. We're yeah, totally yeah, there, bonus there's, questions. there's so many of these to talk about. This one, like, I, I wrote down mostly because it's like the classic uh, no-win question, even though I don't have a whole lot to say about it. Uh, GMs, abusers, yeah. control freaks, or both? <laughs> uh, it, it's the, you know, when did you stop beating your wife question. Uh, anecdote, anecdote time. Uh, we did a long, long-running D&D game uh, that I still am going to yell at my friend to get started again because they were crazy. Um, like, D&D 3.5 forever. And we had rotating GMs at one point because I didn't want a GM and he didn't want a GM and we're like, look, somebody else will take it this session. And one of the things about being a GM is that in D&D you probably don't want to be antagonistic to the players uh, because if you are antagonistic to the players, it's really easy to just say, yes, you all die right here. Yeah, like, rocks fall, everybody dies. Yeah, like that's totally within the GM's power. So, so after you've GM for a while, hopefully you get to the point where you decide... You know, I'm here to make sure that everybody's having a good time and something is moving and all these things are happening. Uh, this person had not gotten to that point yet. And uh-huh. so we were doing all the crazy D&D things that you do, like uh, having our fairy drop something. Uh, explosive runes was the tool of choice for my group. And so oh, they sure. Drop that down and uh, the DM... You know, we didn't tell the DM what was written on the thing because that was the kind of group it was. Mm-hmm. And they open it up, and it's like, well, this is the damage that they would take. And the DM's like, well, he doesn't actually take that damage for, you know, dumb reason X. Yeah. Oh, man, it was the worst session ever. <laughs> but it's like, it's so easy to do that as a GM because, you know, what's stopping you? You're you're in charge of the game. So Yeah, I mean, it gets at this really interesting thing where GMs in... And RPGs uh, that that have a GM that works, uh, I, I want to say traditionally. I'll define that as somewhat like older D and D. Like sure. that's that's a, a tough term to nail down. But if you have a GM that is defining the world and arbitrating uh, how things resolve within that world to some degree, the like, referee GM, the, or the umpire GM. Well, and, and it's but you, calling it referee implies that. You are impartial where, in fact, you're the one creating the opposition as well. It's like the referee plays for one of the teams in the game. Right. Um, And, you know, a lot of people have played some kind of, like, rec league soccer or something where, sure, like, there isn't a ref and everybody just kind of has to agree on the calls. uh, And that doesn't always work great. Like, it... Playing D&D is kind of the most like that, except only one person who is also playing is making the calls. Yeah, and they're uh, playing on a particular team. And they're playing on a particular team. Uh, and it's the GM's job. They Sports are have actually been on my mind versus RPGs a lot because the, the GM's job is like a sports league to create fun games and not interesting situations and, uh-huh. yeah. and, and that's the like that's the way that sports game design works as well like it I've actually become quite a football fan and watching the NFL tweak their rules to create uh, the kinds of games that they want to televise 
is incredibly interesting game design. Uh, th- this year they moved how far out you get to take the ball on a uh, kickoff touchback like that. Uh, and this what has... It? Was it 20 yards before, right? 25 now. Oh, interesting. Uh, because they want to discourage uh, kind of pointless runbacks to reduce injuries. Right. But they also know that kickoffs are some of the most interesting things, and now the, the kicker's incentives have changed because if they can kick just short of the end zone instead, there's a pretty decent chance if you can get them to start on like the one lot yard line that you're actually going to smother them way before 25. Right. Um, but you're also then risking... Anyway, there's there's all these interesting <laughs> trade-offs, uh, and their goal there is not to create... Uh, it's not quite balance. It's, it's right. interestingness. It's choices and significant outcomes and stuff. And as a GM in kind of that D&D mold, that is a lot of what you're doing, but you're also coaching one of the teams. Like, right. you're... Uh, you have to make it creative and interesting and have important decisions that fall to other people to make. But you also have to make a whole bunch of decisions yourself. It, it's a weird role. There's just nothing quite like it. Uh, and that's, I think, what leads to all of this unpacking of like GMs as uh, a problem. Because there definitely is a corner of gaming where uh, like the the power being concentrated in one person is a problem that should be fixed. Well, we have uh, a ton of vocabulary around that, too. Like, GMs run the game. Yes. You know, and, and it's the this. GM's game. Yeah. Uh, it's it's weird stuff to unpack. Mm-hmm. I mean, it shows a lot about how this, the system grew up out of uh, war gaming, especially, like, military simulation war gaming, arbitrated war gaming, where, where there was somebody who you could just tell them, like, I have my radio officer tell this ship to move here and then the judge of the simulation would just like go off into a corner and then come back and say like oh radio silence like and you don't know what they're doing like they could have just made that uh, that kind of judgment uh, is where DMing comes from and I think that the fact that not a whole lot of people ran military war games in that style I mean that's not a very developed uh a skill set for most people. Well, and then most of those games were also, they would put two teams mm-hmm. down. And so you could be a ref and just be a ref. Yeah. Which is much easier than being a ref and the other team at the same time. Like, that's that's just complicated. That actually makes me wonder why we haven't seen more uh, kind of versus RPGs in that style. Logistics is the big reason. Yeah, like, there's, so? there's a series of Napoleonic war games called Le Vol d'Aigle, mm-hmm. uh, Flight of the Eagle, that is that way, where you would have multiple teams and they would send their stuff into a ref and then the ref would say, this is, you know, this is where your people moved and what you can see and, you know, they went through and birds are flying from blah, blah, blah. And, and they do exist, but they're so hard to, to run mm-hmm. because you probably need multiple rooms or to play by email. Mm-hmm. And play by email games just... They always drag down at some point, pretty much. Yeah. We've we played plenty of various uh, play-by-email games with people here at work, and uh, not a whole lot of those have played to completion in any meaningful way. It's just hard to maintain tension when the time between your move and you figure, figure out the resolution is you know, measured in days mm-hmm. instead of a few seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it's, so it's hard. I think it could work... Um, Inheritance does something similar. Yeah. Um, Two Rooms in a Boom does yeah. something similar. So it's possible. It's possible. I mean, I think that... Uh, I, I'm now curious to see more of that come into role-playing, actually. Like, I, I feel like there there could be space there for more uh, competitive in the sense of um, you're against somebody else, but the playing field may not be exactly balanced or equal. I think so much of our... our 
definition of competitive these days comes from uh, esports and board games and stuff where it has to be uh, a neutral playing ground in every way and both teams have to have basically the same abilities, uh, the same interactions, like the, the domain of things you can do needs to be somewhat constrained and any handicapping has to be a pretty clear, you know, this player was handicapped to these many stones or whatever. Um, you could totally run basically any RPG you want that does have combat in in two rooms with a ref manning yeah. both rooms. Like, it would work for almost everything. Yeah. I think that the, especially combat, would get a little slow, but... Uh, if it was scripted, if it was... Uh, oh, that would be interesting. Like, that's uh, the way that, uh, what is it? Um, Chris, I'm, I forgot his last name, which makes me feel horrible. Uh, ran on guard. Right. Oh yeah. Which um, is like a billion-person French simulation, mm-hmm. uh, and you would send in your orders for the month, mm-hmm. and you would have, you know, standing dueling orders, which didn't work the way that I would like them to work. So <laughs> you know, I've got I've got some design sitting there. But it was basically, you know, everybody would send in all their stuff, and then the DM would do this enormous amount of work compiling what actually happened, mm-hmm. and then return everything. And but again, play by email game. Yeah, right? play by email. But yeah, you if you did scripted combat. Then the groups could go through, and the DM could just be like, "You see, blah in the room," and then they could spend twenty minutes scripting or whatever, and yeah. he could tell the other group similar things. Yeah, and then uh, I'm imagining with Torchbearer, just because it's uh, a team scripting system that could be pretty easy for everybody to lock in their things and then come together. Uh, you have to do some rolling together, but at least then, like, there's uh, there's fewer modifications to come at that point. Yeah, um, it's just locking by time step. That's the hard part. Yeah. Um, so, you, like, the ideal way to do the Torchbearer one is to have two GMs with, you know, linked by chat. Mm-hmm. And they would both let people do stuff, and then when the next check happened or when the next time sync happened, you just wait for the other group to be there. Yep. And then you continue. Well, and uh, Torchbearer, I mean, because this is coming indirectly via Moldvay, uh, the, the time units are clearer as well. Like right. the, the groups could synchronize on time outside of combat as well at a, a pretty meaningful way. Um, oh, that's actually really interesting now. I want to do two-room torchbearer. Yeah. Uh, two, two groups delve in for some treasure at the same time. Uh, and I think uh, no pre-establishing animosity between them. It's not like you're going to eventually fight each other. Like What you do when you see this other group, uh, especially the more sleight of hand you could do to run it uh, as a GM. Well, they don't have to know it's the other group. Exactly. You know, it, especially if you try to time lock, you could definitely set up the system so that, oh yeah, you see a shadow in the dark over here, and uh-huh. what do you do? You yeah. know? And once they eventually encounter, uh, you have to be typing a lot to shuttle it back and forth. But no, you, you, you just do, you just don't do straight discussion. Like, yeah. Oh, no, you totally, uh, like, Torchbearer would be really good for locking everybody into different languages so that you there's no need to directly... Yeah, uh, you don't uh, understand what they're saying. Yeah, like, they, they come forward threateningly. What do you do? Like, yeah, that would actually be really solid. So, yeah, someday. Someday we'll run it. Uh, another idea for somebody to steal. And <laughs> if you do that, tell us how it came out. Yeah, let, um, me, let, me, let me show up. Uh, best story about waiting for players in a GMless game to finally get to the point in a scene they've called for, but obviously had no idea why they wanted it. Microscope, my goodness. Yep. So uh, many Microscope scenes go that way. It's like, hey, new group, this is what you can do in Microscope. You can build this thing at this level, or this thing at this level, or a scene at the bottom level. 
What do all these things mean? Well, this thing's going to make this big, long era of time, and this thing's going to be like, you know, a, a movie in that era of time, and this thing is going to be a scene in that movie. No problem. Well, okay, cool, and we'll go around the table. Okay, here's a scene. Well, you have to have a question. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. The groups that understand the idea of having a question, and if your group can be like, okay, that's question answered. I know there's a bunch more stuff you want to know, but that's the question answered right there and end it. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. But in the beginning, it's like making that question is super hard. Yeah. It's it's a skill that is hard to teach. Um, and it's one of those things, uh, it's kind of like beliefs in Burning Wheel. Yeah, like, exactly. The game can completely fall down if you don't have that skill. And Burning Wheel, you can at least work around it a little bit by giving pre-made characters and stuff to start with or yeah, uh, really workshopping the beliefs ahead of time. But in Microscope, the whole point is that somebody just decided in the moment, let's do a scene. And uh, yeah, that, that's one of those things where Microscope, I, I love the game in a lot of ways, but... Often, by the time we've gone around the table twice, I'm like, I, I've had enough. This is this is all I wanted. I'm done. Oh, man. Well, cool. We answered a whole bunch of questions because our question for the week was more questions. Uh, I think this is probably a record in how many questions we've answered in one episode. Going meta, man. All about the meta. I also had the fate question answered, but oh, only geez. kind of answered. Yeah, that one, uh, that one actually for me was a little... Pointedly trolling. Uh, yeah, go ahead and read it. I mean, we've got. Time. How many friendships have you terminated because they confess they kind of like to play fate games sometimes? It's okay. Fate players have to hear the truth. Yeah, I play Diaspora because I'm that kind of person. Yeah, that's that's a fate game that hard science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I mean, we played it coming right off of GURPS, mm-hmm. and our GURPS game was like this time-traveling game with a Baba Yaga villain in it. Like, you, insanity. And then you go from there to Diaspora, where it's like, okay, we're going to try and be as realistic as we can, uh, and by the way, here's this enormous scene currency that we have. Yep. Um, but I played, I played Fate like I play uh, Dread. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a really mean Dread DM. Yep. Uh, as you should be. Yeah, like, that's, that's the best way to do it, and... Uh, I, th- I feel like it went okay, but I mean, the game died pretty quick because it's hard. It doesn't give you enough tools. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I love the idea of the game so much. It, it's one of those games where uh, the the elevator pitch always makes me want to play it, and then I remember how it actually works, and I'm not quite as excited. It's not for me as much. Yeah, I don't know. I, it, tastes have changed. Uh, I, it's just such such an easier time playing a game that is really, really straightforward about what genre it's trying to evoke. Yeah. I, I thought this question was really interesting because it uh, it was basically the only one that mentioned a specific game. Yeah, I mean, some no. of the other, like there was the Powered by the Apocalypse role one, but that uh, didn't actually mention Apocalypse World. It just mentioned Powered by the Apocalypse. I think the GM one was super close to mentioning Vampire the Masquerade, personally. Yes. Okay, sure. Like... like it, for me, like there was, there's this uh, line in the trolling where, it, where, when it was this general like poking at like, oh yeah, like I've I've seen the story game thread on that, like yeah. that totally is a thing that somebody discussed at one point. Like they were looking entirely through their own navel at the time, but like the the navel gazing led to that conversation. Okay, but this one was kind of like, I mean, I, I, I'm not personally the biggest fate player. I mean, it's fine, but like it's it's not one of those games that I uh, try to promote when I am pitching games for the most part. And I still just didn't like the throwing it under the bus to that degree, even though there's obviously an element of tongue-in-cheek in in all these. Yes. Uh, Oh, good times. Fate players. Fate players. Sorry, guys. (laughs) 
Well, cool. That is a lot of questions for one episode. Uh, and hopefully now that things have calmed down a little bit, we'll be back to a, a more regular release schedule. Madness. So we will uh, hopefully be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. Sweet. <laughs>